Well, hello again. Doug Hooley here, happy to come to you on yet another episode of the Called Out Cafe podcast. The current series we're going through right now all has to do with what the Bible says about the supernatural, or spiritual, or unseen realm. The regular stomping ground of angels, demons, all of those who have died in history, a couple who have never died but are there anyway, and the Messiah, Jesus, and God the Father, who also makes himself constantly known in that realm. In this episode, since not everyone who considers themselves a Christian believes that hell is a real place, I'm going to talk about the reality of hell. No, although he may have influenced some of the images of hell that come to mind when we think of it, 13th century author of The Inferno, Alighieri Dante, didn't make hell up. Although it's not on my list of places I want to visit, according to scripture, it's an actual address you'd find in the spirit realm if you were able to visit there. I've put a lot of time into it already, but the subject of hell is one that I've yet to study to the extent I would like to. My intent is to one day study the many individual passages where the various terms we translate as hell are mentioned. Such terms as Hades, Tartaru, Gehenna, or Sheol, or other descriptive terms such as the abyss or bottomless pit. Sometimes word studies in the Bible are really important because others base their arguments on words. For example, in an attempt to downplay the existence of hell, some go so far as to say that hell's not even mentioned in the Bible. Well, that's a childish argument. Of course, the English word hell is not mentioned in the Bible, just like every other word in the English language is not mentioned in the original scriptures. Hell is an Old English Anglo-Saxon word that was used in the King James Version of the Bible. It was meant to capture the meaning of the Hebrew concept of Gehenna. I'll talk more about the individual words translated as hell later. But first, I want to address a topic that confuses a lot of people. There's a difference between hell and the eternal lake of fire. People often get the two fiery places of torment confused. The lake of fire does not come into play until after the final judgment, which occurs after Jesus returns and his millennial reign on earth takes place. By then, hell will have served its purpose, be of no further use, and will itself be thrown into the lake of fire along with death and all those whose names are not found in the book of life. You can read about that in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 14 to 15. All whose names are not found written in the book of life at the final judgment will be thrown into the lake of fire. Being thrown into a lake of fire implies destruction. After pruning all of our blueberry bushes and orchard, when I start a burn pile in my field, by the time it's done, all but a pile of ash is gone. Destruction may be indeed the result of the lake of fire. However, what will occur in the lake of fire will be a never-ending destruction. The lake of fire is a fire that does not consume, but only causes torment forever and ever. In the following passage, keep in mind that although the devil is a spiritual creature, the beast and the false prophet being referred to are human beings. This is Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Greek words used to convey the idea of eternity or forever and ever or age upon age regarding how long the lake of fire will last are Ionis ton Ionon, literally meaning ages of the ages. In passages such as 1 Timothy 1.17 and Revelation 5.13, they are the same words that describe God as an eternal being. To argue, as some do, that hell, or the lake of fire, and the torment that goes on there is not eternal, based on the terminology used, is to make an argument that God is also not eternal, based on the same terminology. The same holds true when we compare language regarding the eternal punishment of the wicked with the eternal life of the righteous. It's the same term, ionion, used for both. If eternal punishment does not last forever, then neither does eternal life. Jesus paints an unquestionable picture that hell is a holding place for the dead who have been damned. For example, as he was addressing a group of hypocritical Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus asked them how they're ever going to escape being sentenced to hell. Jesus associates the term with a place associated with the damned. I'm not going to read all these to you now, but based on numerous scriptures like Matthew chapter 5, 22 and 29, chapter 10, 28, chapter 18, verse 9, and Mark 9, 47, and then Luke 12, hell is a place designed to give incentive to people to not be evil while they're alive. Here's one such example of this as Jesus warns the people of Capernaum. This is found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 to 23. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. Rather than being promised heaven, Jesus is warning the people of Capernaum that because they will not repent, they'll be brought down to, quote, Hades, unquote. As I've already said, some argue that Hades is only referring to the grave or cemetery where we bury dead bodies. But does Jesus only mean the wicked will die and go to the grave? Well, don't we all do that? Don't the elect qualify for dying and being buried in the grave the same as the non-elect? This is clearly a warning or threat that the people of Capernaum are going to be sent to hell, Hades, for their actions, a penalty beyond the physical death we all, both righteous in Christ and unrighteous apart from Christ, experience. Whereas the physical grave is for us all, elect or not, hell is a place of penalty for the wicked. Although it's not the lake of fire which hell and its occupants will one day be cast into, hell itself is a place of unquenchable fire. It's the place which is the center of power for the kingdom of Satan. Hell is the place of darkness and torment where hypocrites and unbelievers will go, and where at least four different passages in the Gospels tell us that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth indicates some level of consciousness and some sort of form that includes eyes that can weep 
and teeth that can grind. Hell is sometimes referred to not by name, but by its attributes. It's a place of being separate from Jesus. In Matthew 8.12, it's referred to as a place of outer darkness. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 14, we read of some prophetic interaction between the kings of the nations and a being referred to as the king of Babylon, who may represent either Satan or the Antichrist of the end of the age. This interaction takes place in hell. These kings of the earth and the nations who inhabit hell, along with the king of Babylon, are making fun of him or taunting him. This is true to form of those who you expect to find in hell. Those in hell have consciousness. They can converse with one another, and they can taunt each other. Hell is where the damned of both physical and spiritual realms meet. In the parable of the sheep and goats judgment, which is a judgment of human beings that takes place just prior to Jesus beginning his millennial reign on the earth, Jesus said that the damned will be sent into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Human beings being sent to a place which is also meant to torment spiritual beings. According to the Apostle Peter, it's the place that some angels who have rebelled have already been cast into and are bound in chains of darkness. If hell or Gehenna only represents the grave, or the place of the dead, meaning the place where dead bodies are buried in tombs or in the ground, then what difference does it make to how anyone lives their lives? Some, who love the ways of this world so much, might even be willing to write off eternal life and what God has in store for the elect in exchange for a life of self-centered debauchery and self-indulgence, if it were true that there would be no penalty for rejecting God. Do it your own way. Live life exactly like you want, and then just go to sleep at the end. What's wrong with that? But if that were true, then the Bible cannot be trusted as a source of plain truth. Yeah, if that were true, then why do we read in the Psalms that it's the wicked who will be sent to Sheol, and not everyone? Why do so many of the scriptures referring to hell refer to one's soul being sent there, rather than only their dead body? If their spirit no longer exists, how is it able to experience the torments of hell that Jesus describes? Are the righteous really unable to escape what's described as the damnation of the grave, if it only means the place their bodies are buried? Or why would Jesus say that the gates of hell, or by some people's definition the place where dead people are buried, would not be able to withstand his kingdom? We may as well be saying that cemeteries will not be able to withstand the kingdom of heaven. So what? What would that even mean? (laughs) Physical death and being placed in a physical grave is a separate act than being sent to hell. Jesus says as much when he says in Luke 12, verses 4 to 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I'll warn you who to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Is Jesus saying we should fear a murderous undertaker? The guy who, after he kills you, can place you in the ground? 
No, not at all. Jesus is making the point that we go on after this physical life. We're still conscious and subject to experience what's in store for us after our physical death. What in the world would he be saying we should fear if not for that? We should fear the cold, damp ground of the grave? Of course not. What's left of our lifeless physical bodies won't be able to do so. We're to fear the God who could have us sent to hell, where there will be unrelenting flames, darkness, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, many, certainly not all, Old Testament passages may be referring simply to the grave. And yes, the words translated from the original languages into English as hell may have their origins in words pertaining to the grave or physical death. However, most of the references that I've looked at in the New Testament and many in the Old clearly use the physical grave in a figurative way. Regardless of the origins of the words used to talk about hell, the grave came to commonly represent far more than only the place that bodies are buried. The use of the words are referring to the status of the departed yet conscious soul in the afterlife, not a person's inanimate, rotting flesh which is laying in a tomb. Nor is it referring to an unconscious soul that God has warehoused somewhere, as those who support the idea of soul sleep would claim. Clinging to the argument that the word translated as hell in the Bible is only referring to the grave is simply showing a great lack of study of how the various words involved are used throughout the entire Bible. The Septuagint is the first translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. The 70 translators of the Hebrew Septuagint in the 3rd century BC chose to translate the Hebrew word Sheol as Hades. In other words, Hades was considered the contemporary Greek equal of the Hebrew word Sheol. In the Greek world, the realm of the Greek god Hades, of course, was not just associated with the grave, meaning the place where people are buried, but with the misty and gloomy abode of the dead, a realm full of conscious souls who wanted not much more than to get out of Hades. There were other words used in both the Old and New Testaments for places where human remains were laid to rest, as opposed to the place where souls or spirits go when they die. Places in the New Testament where the idea is made clear that someone is simply buried in a tomb or a grave, the Greek word neima, let me try that again, neima is used. <laughs> that word is typically translated in the Bible as tomb grave, or sepulcher. In the Old Testament, the word commonly used to refer to a tomb, a grave, or a burying place, or a sepulcher is kaber, a little bit easier to pronounce. When it was only the physical grave that the biblical authors wanted to communicate, these are the words that they used. And it wasn't only the ancient pagan cultures that tie hell to the lower regions of our planet. Hell, unlike heaven, is often tied to physical, earthly geography in Scripture. The Nahash, the serpent of Genesis, was sentenced to being earthbound. It's the earth which Satan's normal habitat is to this day. 
I already referred to this scripture in Isaiah, but the king of Babylon, which may be a scripture containing a parallel story involving Satan or the human antichrist he will control one day, is told that he will be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. In the book of Revelation, we see demons bound at the great river Euphrates, and we see evil creatures coming up out of the bottomless pit. They have a demonic king over them who is called the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon. Peter is the only one that does this, but he uses the term Tartaru when referring to hell. It's the only place this word is used in the whole Bible. In ancient Greek literature, which Peter was drawing on, Tartaros was the deep, dark abyss that was used as a dungeon to torture the wicked for their evil deeds. It was another contemporary term of Gehenna for the Jews. The pseudographic book of Enoch, which some New Testament authors were familiar with, and in fact cite in the New Testament, contains not just a little descriptive information about three separate places that the souls of the dead go when their bodies die, one for the righteous and two for the wicked. It's obvious that the ancient Hebrews' worldview was that there was an afterlife for both the wicked and the righteous. The book of Enoch, in some spots, has components that somewhat resemble a parable that Jesus told, found in Luke chapter 16. It was there that Jesus tells a story about a rich man who was buried, (laughs) and there, in hell, he found himself being tormented by flames. Across a chasm was another soul named Lazarus. He was resting in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man and Abraham had an exchange about his status. The rich man asking that if only a message could be sent to his living family to warn them about the place of torment that he found himself in. Abraham told the rich man, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to one who rose from the dead to give them a message. Some say this story is fictitious from beginning to end and not based on anything existing in reality that the story is merely an allegory or fable Jesus used to make a point about people's spiritual blindness, and nothing about the story should be looked upon as reliable information about the afterlife. They say that even the torture of hell, or the fact that people have consciousness in such a place, is complete fiction. If that's all true, it's the only example of Jesus using a story in such a way. Jesus told many parables. Most of them may have been based on fiction, but none of them were based on fantasies, fables, or false realities. All of Jesus' parables were based on plausible situations that may have actually taken place, whether it was planting a seed in a field, a master going away for a while, a shepherd separating sheep from goats, or a rich man throwing a wedding party. This story would be the one and only fantasy parable Jesus ever told. And it would have been totally out of character for him. Why would he risk misleading people regarding the afterlife? No, he told a story the people could relate to, a story based on what people would expect to hear, based on what they believed about the afterlife. This was not a fantasy featuring heffalumps and woozles. 
if it was not based in the reality of what happens after death, it would be entirely out of character for Jesus, who is the truth, to validate anyone's false ideas or plant misbeliefs. Why would Father Abraham say it wouldn't do any good for a resurrected person to go back and talk to the living about the penalty awaiting after death for those living a sinful life if they had not listened to Moses and the prophets tell them the same thing if that wasn't true? What the story of Lazarus illustrates, for our purposes here anyway, besides some people's spiritual blindness, is that hell is real. It's a place of torment. The dead have consciousness, and the righteous and the wicked do not end up in the same place when they die. I can't scientifically prove the existence of hell to you. Since it exists in a realm that's outside our human ability to measure it, we're limited to what has been revealed to us by those who have had it revealed to them, by the creator of the spirit realm in which hell exists. Those revelations are contained in the Bible. For several reasons, I'm convinced that the information contained in the Bible is trustworthy, and I'm convinced that the trustworthy information communicates to us that hell is a very real and nasty place. Should hell be feared? Are you kidding me? If you're not living in utter dependence on Jesus to save you from it, then hell yes, you should fear it. I'll talk more about heaven and hell towards the end of this series when I talk about what happens when we depart from this life into the realm of the Spirit. But for now, I'm going to move on to a different topic. That is the creation of the unseen heavenly realm. Now, it's not my purpose here to defend the Bible's account of creation, although I do believe the way we understand the creation account in the Bible is to take it at face value. But that's a fascinating discussion for another time. However, what I'm going to say regarding creation assumes that what the Bible says about the origins of the universe, both the seen and unseen realms, to be literally true. That is what I believe to be true after carefully considering all the available evidence, meaning not only what humans can observe through their senses, science, but also the documentation of witnesses recorded in the Bible, a book that I believe to be credible. Also, I'm taking into account the corroborating testimony of other ancient cultures, logic, and finally, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. But my final reason to take a literal approach regarding the Bible's creation account is because I believe it was the view held by the biblical authors and their contemporaries that read what they wrote. Before physical time began on the first day of creation, God created the physical elements he later used to form the physical universe out of nothing, ex nihilo. Besides the physical elements, we're told he also created the heavens. The heavens include all those created occupants of the heavenly realm and things which are not physical. Unless God makes an exception, those spiritual things or beings cannot be observed by humans while in their normal physical state. The heavens include a specific place called heaven, which is where the throne of God is located. It's the heavenly realm, as we'll see, that the Most High Creator God, Yahweh, regularly interacts with His creation. 
Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2, informs us of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Please don't miss this. Light is not the first thing that God created. The heavens were. They were created along with the earth, prior to light being created. This is what occurred in the beginning. Yes, even earlier than when God said, let there be light. Genesis 1.1, in which we are given this information, is not just a summary of the creation of the cosmos that was about to happen. It's the information about what happened prior to even the creation of light. It's a report of the creation of the elements which would make up the physical universe and the creation of the heavens, the spirit realm. However, at this point in creation, the earth part of creation was not as we know it today. As scripture informs us, it was without form, empty, and shrouded in darkness. To restate this, before even light had been created on the first day, God had already been creating. The elements initially were created and suspended in a formless, chaotic mass. But the heavenly realm, meaning the unseen spiritual heavens and its inhabitants, as far as we know from Scripture, had been completely created. We're told that before God uttered his first words of creation, quote, let there be light, unquote, that he, quote, hovered or brooded over the chaotic mass of elements. If Genesis 1-1 is merely a summary of what was about to take place, there would be no accounting for where this chaotic mass of elements had originated from. They would have just somehow mysteriously shown up on the second day of creation when God separated out the elements that seemingly already existed. But Genesis 1-1 accounts for where the elements came from. The elements were the first things along with the realm of the heavens that were created. It's after the events mentioned in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, that God created light, probably the entire electromagnetic spectrum and energy. That's when he started marking time. How far ahead of time did God create the heavens and the stuff which he would form into the earth? We don't know. Call it earlier the same day if you must. But the problem with that is that there was nothing to mark time as we know it yet. No movements of planets, no light coming and going. There was only new activity in a new, spiritual, unaging, endless realm. So, it would not be technically correct to say that the stuff the earth was made of and the unseen heavenly realm was created earlier the same day that light was created because God had not yet created a day. The first day was only made possible after God created light and separated it from the darkness. All we can say is that the heavens and the elements God would form into the earth were created before God said, 
let there be light. The heavens that were created along with the elements of the earth, which the Spirit of God brooded over even before light was created, are different than the sky and outer space where planets dwell. That space, which is also called heaven, was created on the second day. It wasn't until the fourth day that God placed the sun, moon, planets, and stars in the physical heavens. We're not told that in the beginning God said, let there be protons and neutrons and electrons and quarks, which will comprise matter, and let there be a realm not made of matter, which I will make myself known and dwell in. Maybe that's because the sound that would be produced by saying these things wasn't even made possible until the physical elements had been created. And perhaps God didn't speak anything because there was no one to say anything to prior to creating the heavens. God would have only been talking to himself. But after he created the heavens, that was no longer the case. He would forevermore have a heavenly audience. One class or rank of occupants of heaven are referred to as the sons of God. I'll talk a lot more about that later. These sons of God, having already been created as a part of the heavens, were present on the first day of creation. They were there to hear God say, Let there be light. Because of some ancient beliefs that heavenly beings were actual stars in the sky, the angels were sometimes referred to as stars or morning stars. That's the case in the following passage from Job, where we're informed that the occupants of the heavens were present for the creation of the physical world. In the following passage, it's God that's speaking to Job. Here we go. This is Job 38, verses 4 to 7. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Can you even imagine this? Newly created beings, present in physical blackness and deafening silence, not having a clue as to what was going to happen, and suddenly, the one who just created them, booming out his voice, let there be light. The first physical sound they heard was God's voice. Then, the lights come on for the first time, illuminating all the elements that would make up the physical universe. What a show! Their joy and expectations were undoubtedly uncontainable, as the book of Job documents. The heavenly host, being created sometime prior to day one of six days of creation, were the enthusiastic and emotional witnesses of the formation of the physical realm. They've been privileged to witness God's entire story unfold from the very beginning. As you'll see in the coming episodes, they play a huge part all throughout God's divine drama contained in the Bible. These first residents of all of creation are still as active today as ever, and they'll continue to be on into the future. Today, they've all been placed under the authority of the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus resides in the same place these beings exist and is a witness to the splendor of the heavens.
He can look at his friends, these witnesses of creation, directly in the eye and talk about old times. What an incredible thought it is to wonder about what it might be today that makes the morning stars shout for joy. There may be more that can be gleaned from Scripture about the creation of the spirit realm, but we're just not given that much information about it in the Bible. Now, I don't want to make the same mistake so many others have done by doing too much speculating. What I hope is that I've piqued your interest and inspired you to study this more for yourself. So that's it for now on this topic. Next time, I'm going to jump into the whole subject of who it is that the Old Testament refers to as the sons of God. Until then, may God richly bless you in ways that I can't even imagine. And Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.